Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guests today are Emma Ashford, Senior Fellow at the Stimson Center and an adjunct with Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies, and Patrick Porter, Professor of International Security at the University of Birmingham and an adjunct scholar with the Cato Institute. Emma, Patrick, thank you both for coming on. Thank Great you. to be here. So the war in Ukraine has uh, intensified in recent days. Moscow has uh, mobilized in a way that it hasn't since World War II, um, uh, bringing in 300,000 reservists. Um, there were referendums in four eastern parts of Ukraine, which um, Russia has effectively announced an annexation of uh, uh, just now. And there are uh, there's sabotage in the Baltic Sea of Nord Stream pipelines uh, and uh, explicit threats of, of potential nuclear escalation. Uh, I just want each of your um, perspectives on the latest and sort of uh, the, the extent to which uh, things have escalated and intensified in recent days. Well, I'll jump in here first. Um, I think things have escalated pretty substantially in the last couple of weeks, um, particularly on the Russian side. We saw these sort of lightning fast Ukrainian advances in the northeast of the country. And now we've seen the Russian response, which is mass mobilization, um, more nuclear saber rattling, these um, faux referenda, and they're annexing parts of eastern Ukraine. Um, I'm, I'm worried because I think this puts us back in a period of extremely high escalation risk. Um, and to me, all these steps from the Russian side suggest that they are not willing to back down on some of these questions related to the war in Ukraine. And that pretends, you know, either a very long war or further escalation. So, so none of this, I think, is a good development. I think it's a very dangerous out. I think the, this is the danger that's the flip side of, of the success of the West's proxy war in Ukraine. And this was always, in a sense, an inherent danger that the more Ukraine with Western intelligence and arms Sanctions, support, etc., and aid could roll back uh, Putin's aggressive lunge into his neighbouring country. Uh, in some respects, the more Putin would become dangerous. And what what alarms me in particular is not it's not the wildness of the speech. It's not the it's not the extent of the mobilisation. It's it's the very real sense that this is an aggressor who knows he's misplayed his hand and is now, as it were, burning his boats, to mix the metaphors. He's, one thing he has to play on is our rational fear. I think our fears are rational at this point. And by making his nuclear threats and his other threats all the more credible, that he, he has foreclosed the possibility of, of reasonable negotiation. He's foreclosed the possibility of backing down or backing out gracefully and is, has, has thrown down that gauntlet. And I'm not sure we are entirely aware of what we're doing at this point. Do you think that this announcement of um, Russian possession of these territories will change the way the United States is engaged in this conflict? Do we somehow need to be more careful in some respects with how we engage if Putin is liable to see it as an attack on Russian territory? So the thing is, or the, the danger is, I can tell you what I think in terms of where I think Putin's red lines are. Um, 
And I don't think they're at the borders of the territories that that, that Russia just annexed. Um, and I know that because Russia hasn't even conquered those full territories yet. So, you know, clearly the red line is not there. Um, I think the red line is at a minimum around Crimea. Um, but so all of the space in between that, it's very uncertain. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, me, one person trying to assess what the Russian government is thinking on these questions, I don't know. Um, and for policymakers, it's the exact same way, right? They are effectively making a guess. It may be an educated guess, but we simply don't know um, what is bluffing and what is actually serious threats to escalate to the nuclear level. And so that's why I think I agree with Patrick here. This is an extremely dangerous period. Putin gave a speech to mark this uh, this formal annexation. And he gave some remarks about the ongoing war in Ukraine, but Ukraine really was not the focus of that speech. It was much more about Russia against the West, against the United States, Russian resentment over US-led world ordering, uh, and about some future state where these circumstances are rectified. Um, and uh, Russia resumes its rightful place and recognition as a great power. Um, what did you guys think of that speech? What did it indicate to you about Putin's state of mind and Russian objectives here? Well, I mean, I'm not a Russianist, and so I can't be entirely sure about what he's trying to do with each international and domestic audience. But my snap judgment is that this is an attempt to invest the struggle with maximal meaning uh the better to rally people around it if if it's a, if it's an all-out existential uh war of defense it's to, to preserve russian civilization against a predatory western empire that wants to do all kinds of things to russian children and all sorts of all of the kind of the wild stuff in there uh then by ramping up that shows both, first of all, what he wants his domestic audience to think, but also signaling to us that, that Russia regards this as an existential struggle and we'd better watch out. And this does raise the very awkward question for us. What do we think our stake is, the West, in this? Why does this matter to us? And there are very different answers to that question with very different policy implications. Some people believe, for example, uh, Tim Snyder in the foreign, foreign Affairs just recently, this is some kind of absolute moral struggle between autocracy and dictatorship. And if that's what you think, then you're into a struggle there where you are threatening um, massive conventional nuclear retaliation. However, I have a more a different view, what I think is a realist view, where we have real but limited interests here about blunting Russia's offensive without going to the brink. And I still think that is the way we should look at it. So Emma, do you think that a lot of that stuff about Russia's status and place in the world and its exalted history was more for public consumption? Or is that a, a real vision of how Putin sees this? I mean, it's always hard to parse Vladimir Putin's speeches. Um, but I think I, I would say that the things that we saw in this speech today are themes that have run through his speeches and his remarks and many occasions going all the way back to that infamous speech in Munich in, in 2007. Um, you know, the notion that the West is an encroaching monolith that Russia is really worried about, that they need to push back on it, the notion that this is a threat to Russia, um, you know, the attempt to build some kind of international constituency for this view, and obviously Russia's not been very successful 
in that. Um, but I mean, it's clear that some of this is for public consumption, right? There's a, there's a concert on Red Square with a bunch of Russian pop stars singing about how great the annexation is, right? That's for public consumption. But much of Putin's speech was very consistent with the remarks he's been making throughout this conflict. He really does appear to view this as something um, if not existential for Russia, then at least perhaps existential for himself. Um, and, you know, you don't see any sign that he's thinking about backing down here. Yeah, I'm just reading some of the news on this. Reuters uh, had a quote that I think is you can find in a lot of places from um, the news media to think tank commentary to, and I think scholars are working on this too. Um, but Quote, Putin's overriding priority has been to restore at least some of the great power status, which Moscow lost when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Um, and particularly what we've just talked about this in, in the Moscow view being much bigger than simply Ukraine. Uh, how do you guys understand this explanation for the war? I think that is part of it. There are two impulses I see which are often treated as antithetical and mutually exclusive, which I don't think are antithetical or mutually exclusive, one of which is uh, a kind of reactive security seeking of a power that's frightened of being preyed upon, of being encroached upon, of being diminished, all of those things, rightly or wrongly as how it sees itself. But the other one is a kind of imperial aggrandizement, this sense that Russia is entitled that it wants to, it does want to expand. It would want to demand a sphere. In a sense, these two things interlock in quite a violent way. That if if you think the next door is your rightful real estate or patrimony, if you think that someone moving into that estate as a security partner is then threatening you and threatening you with the possibility that that patrimony is then gone for good, then you become even more imperial about that real estate. So there's a those two things seem to come together. I do think. And this is where you don't, I don't, don't think, have to be a Russianist to get the general point that most great powers dislike what they see as encroachment on their neighbouring territory. Uh, the United States in 1962, China in 1950, in different ways and different intensities. I'm whether or not this is legitimate is above my pay grade. It's like looking out the window and asking whether the weather is legitimate. It's how it is. It's how they tend to react to the world around them. What happened in February 20, 2022 was a culmination of a long process of a mixture of fear, resentment, and and a desire to reassert itself, which was then accelerated by a number of developments last year. So I, I sort of agree with Mearsheimer on the main point, but I want to add that there is an imperial dimension. And by the way, this is often misconceived as narrowly as fear of NATO enlargement, that in some respect, that's a red herring. Ukraine was not going into NATO, but NATO informally was moving into Ukraine. Security partnership, arms, all those things. Now, you can say that Russia was was ridiculous and paranoid to fear that. You can say it was illegitimate in fearing that, but the fact is it did fear it. So I completely agree with this. Um, I think, you know, that there has been this very active debate about, you know, was this about NATO expansion or was this about Russia's imperialist ambitions? And, you know, certainly from the point of view of those who study Russia, the, the debate entirely overlooks the fact that in Russian history and in the way that Russian elites tend to think about security, um, you know, questions of imperialism and questions of security are intrinsically linked. Russian elites have always sought to find themselves some kind of buffer 
zone, right, between them and other unfriendly great powers. And we see this over and over in Russian history, you know, either engaging in conquest to seize territories that help them to hold a buffer um, or, you know, coming to agreements like the agreements at Yalta during the Second World War that would, you know, help them to prevent a future state like Germany. And so, you know, I think there is a very clear security concern here on the part of Russia. How it manifests is in this notion that Ukraine is not a legitimate state, it's just a borderland of Russia and that the Russians have some right to do this. And as as Patrick says, you know, that's morally abhorrent, but it is, I think, how these things are actually seen by many in Moscow. Um, Emma, you recently wrote uh, a piece for Foreign Affairs in which you said, quote, Ukraine has been a flashpoint for realist thought. And so I had you two realists on here to uh, to flesh that out for me. What did you mean by that? So I think Ukraine um, and to, to some extent Taiwan um, have begun to feature in the debates over U.S. foreign policy as the, the place where the rubber hits the road. For, for lack of a better word. Um, realists um, typically warn about, you know, provoking a reaction from other great powers. They're worried about escalation. They're concerned about power. They recognize that other states have security concerns. Um, and so, you know, the whole debate, for example, about NATO expansion um, was realists saying, you know, Russia is going to be really concerned about this. They're going to push back. Um, and then Russia sort of eventually pushing back when it came to Georgia and Ukraine. And the reason I say Ukraine is just so important in this discussion is it is the place where Russia clearly decided, Russian elites decided that they felt that that threat, that security problem was enough that they were going to go ahead and actually start a war. And I don't even necessarily mean the war this year. You know, we had a war in Georgia in 2008. We had another war in Ukraine in 2014 that continued to the present day. Um, These are the places where you see realists coming into conflict with liberal internationalists. Liberal internationalists would argue it's really not that big a deal because NATO is very benevolent. And realists would say, no, no matter how benevolent NATO believes itself to be, uh, other countries are always going to fear an alliance pushing up to their borders. And, and Ukraine is where that line lies. How is it that realism kind of simultaneously gets accused of both being too hawkish and kind of hard-hearted and of being given to compromise and concessions and even parroting enemy talking points? Can you clear up that seeming tension for us? Yes. Well, it's quite simply that realism insists much to many people's outrage that you can't just think about the world in terms of right and wrong. You have to think about power, interests, and survival. And sometimes that leads you to do things that are quite robust. And sometimes that leads you to do things that are quite accommodating. And in both instances, being robust and war-prone or being accommodating and making concessions offends people who are what I call moralists. A moralist is someone who believes that in international relations, um, it is all reducible to questions of principle and that we can essentially take a private morality, what Machiavelli would have seen as a Christian morality, and universalize it to the relationship between states. Whereas realists say the world, world between states, the relationship between states out there is a much different, colder, harsher place with, because there's no supreme authority 
it's a world of self-help and uncertainty and ultimate solitude, have to fend for yourself. And sometimes that it doesn't, doesn't lead to no morality. It leads to a, a different kind of morality, a reason of state. So that's the reason people take offence where the realists uh, have the handout to negotiate, Richard Nixon, 1972, uh, whether the realists uh, are ramping up, for example, to balance against contain China. And that's just how it is. But these these paradigm wars that kind of um, sometimes happen in our community of, of, of policy analysts and uh, international relations scholars, you know, sometimes it feels uncomfortable for me because uh, it's everybody getting into their camps. Um, and I, I mean, as controversial as the consummate realist John Mearsheimer is, I remember hearing a lecture of his in which he started out by by making clear that theories are not supposed to be exact specifications of the world. If my theory is roughly 70% right, or if it's correct 70% of the time, that's a pretty good theory. And I think sometimes people miss that. And for me to get a fulsome picture of the world, I need to kind of have a, a small c Catholic approach to the scholarly material. Realism seems to me to have very powerful predictive um, and explanatory capacity, but I, by necessity, have to pull in insights from other paradigms um, or to pay attention to first or second image um, uh, elements that, uh, that, that Kenneth Waltz used to uh, talk about. Um, do you guys feel this way? Is, is realism the major explanatory theory and you can fill in the gaps with some others? How does it work in your mind? I think we've got a little twisted around the axle on the idea that realism is structural realism in the Waltzian sense. Um, you know, And that's not meant to be a theory of foreign policy. Waltz himself quite famously said that. Um, that's meant to be explanatory. At a, at a very large level that, you know, states are black boxes, they're these bowling balls, they're bumping into one another, and that's international politics. That doesn't actually help you explain what's happening right now or think about how to respond to it as anything other than sort of a general model of the world. Um, and so to, to actually explain and to understand what's going around is you do need to extract down from that. I think where paradigms are useful is as this kind of mental model of the world. Um, they explain how you or how policymakers think about the world. What do you think matters most? Is it power? Is it ideas? Is it morals? Um, how do you define your interests? Is it the national interest, or do you believe there's some sort of universal values? Um, and you know, for me, these these things are you know they're they're somewhat explanatory in that I choose realism because I think it is the best at explaining the world. Um, but they're also just a way of rationalizing everything that's happening around you um, and trying to understand you know what's going on and how should I respond to it? Well, at last, some disagreement and some agreement. So um, it, IR theory is like trying to design a map that works. And for a map to work, it needs to have a level of simplification. Otherwise, it's not much good. If you have a map that's exactly to scale, then it tells you nothing because it clarifies nothing. It, it, it isolates nothing. Uh, if you have a map that, that just contains two dots and a line, that's not much good either. It's an oversimplification. So that's the eternal struggle with IR theory. How much simplification do we need and can we afford to make it useful to us 
to both understand causes and effects, but also to develop ideas about what we should do. Because there is a normative side to this. There is a there is a side to this about how we ought to behave and how we how we seek security in this world and what we are trying to secure. There is a moral political side to this as well. Um, I would say realism is best seen as a pessimistic intellectual tradition and a genuine ancient one, out of which there are a number of different attempts to apply it and a different attempts to put it on a scientific footing. I do believe, however, that realists uh, like myself have become guilty of overstating the differences because we like our product differentiation. For example, the concept of anarchy, the idea that the world is a place that's dangerous and unstable and war-prone because there is no supreme authority, that's not an invention of structural realism, and neither is it in particular a discovery of structural realism. Structural realism puts it in a certain way that's useful, but in fact, as Joe Parent has argued, structural realism, the insight about anarchy is visible in Machiavelli, in Thucydides, and all sorts of Morgenthau, that that thing, or rather the absence of that thing, that there's no 999, that there is no benevolent supreme ruler that's going to look after you, is actually a long tradition. Uh, I think the idea that power politics, and in particular material power, which is the ultimate ratio, which is the ultimate currency of everything, is is a constant. I think the idea that we are ultimately alone and that, for example, alliances are not forever is a constant. And lastly, I'd say what's especially useful, particularly maybe right now, and this is one thing that does offend people, is that realism uh, has no time for the notion that anyone is exceptional, that anyone is special, that anyone is not exempt to the constraints and dangers uh, of the world around them, that um, no one sees further, contrary to Madeleine Albright, and just because you think you're benevolent, don't assume that others will see you in the same way, especially since, as realists have always said, intentions are uncertain. Um, I want to get both of your takes on various efforts, uh, Emma, in your foreign affairs piece you wrote of Jonathan Kirshner's uh, An Unwritten Future, but there are many efforts to kind of resurrect elements of what's called classical realism, like honor and prestige to try to fill in what some people see as overly parsimonious um, explanatory gaps in, in realism. Well, so, you know, I think I actually quote it in the piece, but there's this line from um, William Bullforth that I just love. And it's from an article he wrote all about the different varieties of realism. And he says, you know, the most important thing is that there is not now and there has never been any one thing that is realism. Um, and I think that's a really important point because you're right, there are a variety of people, you know, myself included, trying to resurrect parts of realism and either apply them in the academic sense or in or in the policy setting as, as more sort of grand strategic thought. Um, but they're all drawing from the same well and they're all moving in slightly different directions. Um, and so the, the books that I, I read uh, or read for this, this article, this review article, are Jonathan Kirshner's An Uncertain Future, um, in which he tries to basically resurrect classical realism and say we should just be using this today. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to that argument, but the book doesn't really come to any new conclusions about foreign policy, which is, is a little problematic. He basically boils realism down to just being pragmatic. Um, and then the other one is from Matthew Spector, um, and it's much more of a... a um, 
well, you might call it like an attack ad against realism. It's, you know, the idea that even though Spectre himself is sympathetic to realist notions and to a more realist foreign policy, that you can't trust realism because realism comes out of some very dark places in the 20th century. And so, you know, even if it has insights, we shouldn't listen to them because of that guilt by association. Um, and so I, I obviously have some major disagreements with that as well. Um, but it, but it's interesting that, you know, even in this period where apparently, you know, realists are to be shunned, where they're not to be listened to on the question of Ukraine, there is still this sort of cottage industry of people taking realism's insights, applying it to the real world and, and talking about ways to improve it. And I think that really just speaks to the enduring insights of, as, as Patrick frames it, you know, the pessimistic view of world politics. Patrick, you like to hearken back to Thucydides and the ancient uh, notion of of realism. Um, some of these honor, prestige type status uh, elements are, are more famous in that kind of older literature. How do you view their place in in realism and how the world works? Well, I I, I agree that that the words are more from, more common, but if you actually open the bonnet, as it were, and look at the way in which these terms are used in those texts, you, you might find two things, one of which is that the notion of prestige is very closely associated with the notion of power. Prestige was a reputation for power. So cultivating the idea that you had capabilities and were willing to use them, it's not a separate category. But also, um, perhaps more importantly, when it comes down to it, when it really comes down to it, you look at the Melian dialogue, you look at the kind of the realist texts, there's a there's a a warning there that if you become too attached to notions of of honor and the assumption that because of for example your cultural ties or your ancestral links others are going to come look after you guess what they just might not and as the Melians discovered in the face of the uh, aggressive Athenians that scene in Thucydides where the the Melians say uh, the Spartans are bound by for very shame our cousins to come and protect us, and they don't. And Thucydides calls that an expensive hope. So actually, the logic of power politics tends to prevail when those things come into collision, or at least it can, and you can't count on it. So I, again, I think this classical versus structural tradition is, is wrongly distinguished. I think there, there are some differences, and the reason I've always been drawn to classical realism is its, I think, sharper awareness about self-defeating behavior the way in which you can, like in the tragic hero's story, you can destroy yourself, and its greater emphasis upon the dangers of war, what war can do. These are not points that structural realists would necessarily disagree with. It's just a different emphasis. But in that sense, I, I disagree with John Kirshner. I, I don't think that there is this fundamentally different tradition out there and that structural realists are laying claim to a false ancestry. On the point about, um, I have to say just a word about, about Matthew Spector's ar argument. I mean, this is an attempt to discredit realism by giving it a kind of lineage in sinister, Germanic, imperial, and even Nazi heritage. And his argument, I think, which is pretty outlandish, is that realists play this down um, in order to, to talk up their more respectable credentials. Well, first of all, why are they playing it down if they're such committed, dark Nazi imperialists? But secondly, it just there isn't there is just isn't sort of the real evidence for it, except the kind of overlap of some of the vocabulary. 
And if anything, realism at its best this century has tried to be, lie of the last century, uh, a theory of peace, a, a very dark peace and a peace in a, in a very imperial world. But there's an attempt there to kind of taint it with this. And he says that the, the, what we must do is break free of this and create societies that are more post-colonial, more feminist. My prediction would be in such a society, they would also be subject to the logic of anarchy and would become pretty realist. Yeah, let me just actually add, I guess, two things to that, because, yeah, this this very much frustrated me about the Spectre book. And to the extent that he basically, the way he shows ties between some of these very imperialistic past and, and modern realists is, you know, to say that um, some of the German Jews that left Germany and came to America and then wrote about realism later, that they had previously been taught by people that later became Nazis. And so you can kind of see right there just how sort of ridiculous it is to suggest that that's, you know, that that the lineage there is is a problem. Um, and I do think he also really underplays the extent to which liberal theories of IR were in this period, in the same interwar period, right. shaped by those colonial notions. Um, I mean, the the editors would not let me put it in the piece, but you know, you could point to the fact that Foreign Affairs used to be the Journal of Race Relations when it was first founded. Um, so so I, I do think that there's, you know, that that this is a rather problematic attack on on realism. Um, and Spectre, I think, you know, the, the core difference between realists and people that are more constructivist or liberal like Spectre is that they genuinely believe it is possible in some way to transform the international system to overcome anarchy in some context. Um, and, you know, I mean, I obviously think that's very unrealistic, not pragmatic. Um, but that's that's the argument that he is fundamentally making here. I want to ask you both about something that Emma referred to earlier, um, which I think, you know, there's basically a consensus among realists about very little, except that DC hasn't paid close enough attention to realist theory and perhaps policy implications. What's going on there? What What is the understanding of realism in DC? Why has it been left out of the party for so long? Talk a little bit about that. So, I mean, I I think the main reason why the United States has such a, a strange discussion about foreign policy, one that's much more untethered from power realities than it should be, is because for a long time we have not needed to have those discussions, right? Realists don't agree that policymakers will always make the right decisions. They just believe that if policymakers make the wrong decisions, they'll eventually be punished for it by the international system. Yeah. Um, we can exactly. see that happening right now in Ukraine as the international system is punishing Putin for making a very stupid strategic call. Um, but America has, for 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, been in this position where we had enough power and enough security that mistakes just really didn't come home to us. Um, and this is not an original insight. Um, the great Nuno Montero wrote a wonderful book on the politics of unipolarity and how, you know, foreign policy inside the unipole, inside America, um, looks a little different than realism might predict. Um, but, you know, the, the really interesting thing about that notion is if you accept that as an explanation for American foreign policy for the last three decades, um, we are sliding out of an era in which that was possible 
But our dialogue and debate in DC is still stuck in the 1990s where America could literally do anything without fear of repercussions. Um, and so I think that has twisted the foreign policy debate um, in a way that's probably going to make us less safe and might end up with the international system punishing America in some way. I mean, I'm not as close to the Washington hothouse as Emma, uh, but my sense is that um, it's not so much that Washington, D.C. discounts, disregards sort of realist thought or traditions or theory or anything like that. It's that Washington, like most governments in most places ever, listens to what it wants to listen to and picks what it wants to pick. And some of, some of the realist message it does like. Some, of, some, some aspects of realism, um, or at least uh, crude versions of it, have been, ha- have been well received in Washington. Um, you know, you don't, there's, there's just, just something about having an $850 billion defense budget that doesn't entirely put you in the anti-realist camp. I mean, realists do believe the, in the importance and the utility of hard power. We can say the budget is, is too big for America's needs, all of those things. But there is the hard, the logic of hard power is there. The logic of sometimes it's good to have alliances to augment your strength is there. The logic that you can't trust other countries too much, and not even allies, is sometimes well received. Um, it's more when realists or people from any school make a dissenting argument about things that Washington doesn't want to hear, which is, I think, when you get more of a strained relationship. So it's about what you expect to be the relationship between power and those who whisper in the ears of power. And sometimes... We say things, others say things that policymakers don't want to hear. I mean, I think there is a danger here, and Emma doesn't do this, but some people do this, where we start to get a bit self-pitying. Oh, why aren't they reading our stuff? Why aren't they becoming? Well, I don't think that's that's the point. It's not personal. It's that they're people under pressure. They're people with, with very strong ideas of what they want to do. They're people who have come through this ecosystem and through this kind of socialization process. They do believe in a lot of them in the sacred importance of American commitments and America's role in the world. And dissenting advice that departs too much from that will have a hard time breaking through. Uh, so I'm not sort of overly offended. I'm just pessimistic about, I mean, as someone once said, you might want to say, speak truth to power, but power doesn't always want to listen. Power already has an idea of what the truth is, and it wants from you what is useful. So I would say, particularly in the lead up to the war, um, the realists tended to put an emphasis on NATO expansion and on how that looks from Moscow's perspective and so on. And that point kind of lent itself to something, some kind of diplomatic posture. If we want to avoid this war and we want to respect power politics, and we want to respect the fact that sometimes great powers like Russia are going to be very insistent on what goes on in their near abroad. Um, that kind of lent itself to possible concessions, some kind of neutrality deal, et cetera, so forth. If we look at the things today and the extent to which they've gone, and now there's further annexation and ongoing war and increasing nuclear threats, um, what what can realist theory tell us about where to go now? Well, you know, I think it's notable if you look back at the start of the war. Um, again, you're right, realists were mostly emphasizing, you know, that this there might be a way out of this, that there might be a diplomatic settlement, the notion of neutrality came up a lot. Um, but it's notable that it wasn't really offered before the start of the war. Um, 
and that within hours of the war starting, the Ukrainian government offered neutrality. Um, the fact at that point that the Kremlin seemed to have decided to throw the dice and see if they could get more, I think suggests that there might have been a negotiation space prior to that, um, you know, that they just weren't, that, 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 that both sides just couldn't reach that point prior to the conflict. In terms of where we go from here, um, you know, I, I think it's it's a very bleak situation. Um, there are no real incentives on either side to settle. Um, Putin has just demonstrated that he is willing to risk, you know, mass upheaval inside Russia by mobilizing this many people in order to win this war. He's not going to back down with nothing. And the Ukrainians have every incentive to not back down, right? They're, you know, obviously receiving massive flows of weapons from the West and money from the West. And, you know, there have been atrocities in the conquered portions of eastern Ukraine. Public opinion in Ukraine is very much set against um, a deal. And so, you know, I think like like a lot of people, I'm extremely pessimistic that that some kind of deal is going to be reached at certainly anytime soon. Um, the, the big barrier, I think, to be honest, is that, you know, when the time for negotiation does eventually arrive, the questions that we're talking about are going to be the same things we basically proved unable to resolve over the last at least 10 years. It's going to be the question of whether Ukraine is willing to give up some territory um, in exchange for, you know, Russia letting it be a unitary state that can defend itself. It's the question of whether the US and Western Europe will be willing to constrain themselves from expanding NATO. It's the question of whether Russia will be willing to, you know, return Ukrainian citizens and acknowledge that Ukraine is a sovereign country. Um, and all of those, I think, are extremely hard sells, you know, which isn't to say that negotiation is impossible. Um, but, I mean, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Well, it hasn't been an ideal outcome, not only to have this very dangerous, atrocious, genocidal, catastrophe unfolding in Ukraine, but for American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War to have ended up making Russia more scared of us than of China. And what we are seeing here, and I think, I think in, the, in, the, in the larger picture, is the coming together of what has been the great strategic nightmare for American thinkers, which is a Eurasian adversary. Russia is becoming China's vassal. And let's say we get out of this without some kind of terrible nuclear disaster. What we're still going to have is some kind of equivalent of a very large North Korea sitting on Europe's borders, on NATO's borders, allied with China, both of them able as kind of in a non-aggression pact to present simultaneous crises to a United States, which is also facing scarce resources, greater political polarization at home, desperate need to reinvest in its own infrastructure and its own people, and probably about to have some kind of resumed crisis in the Middle East with Iran. So there's the commitments are overexceeding exceeding even American power. So I think the focus has to be on if we're going to have an Iran and a Russia and a China and a North Korea that are ruled by bloodstained bastards, some of whom are committing genocide, wouldn't it just be so much safer for America to have them turning against one another than increasingly solidifying their links against the West, against the United States? Because my view is the West has way too much to do at the moment, internally and externally, 
And the task of foreign policy is to create more space in which we can deal with the most fundamental problems in our own way of life. And I think there's something to be said here about, in a post-Putin world, if not now, um, some kind of negotiated coexistence, not to roll back NATO, that's done, uh, but, for example, linking sanctions, uh, linking arm neutrality, linking Russia staying the hell out of our politics, uh, linking some kind of reparations, return of victims, probably with different language, to create the space where the natural antagonism between China and Russia can return. If for no other reason than Russia and China have to then guard their long border against each other again. But at the moment, what's happening the under the uh, so tectonics here is that America, China's vast prodigious growth and Russia's dependency is creating um, not a super threat, but a pretty significant draining thing. And this is where I get off the boat with John uh, John Kirshner's, Jonathan Kirshner's recommendations. He looks at the world and says it's more prudential not to rock the boat, don't make too many changes, things have worked okay so far. The, the landscape is transforming in front of us, and unless the United States can adjust and adjust quickly with a, with a different set of diplomatic relationships and with a, a Europe that takes on much of the defence burden and it's able to focus where it can and ideally to prevent wars where it can, then America, the, the Republic is, is even in greater trouble than it might be. So I'm just tempted to slip in one last question here because um, that's really valuable strategic advice, I think. But with respect to the war itself, if the Biden administration decides it wants to have a positive, constructive impact, however that's defined, uh, what should it be doing that it's not doing? Or what should it not be doing that it is doing? So I might be, you know, at odds with even some of my fellow realists here. I think the administration's done a okay job to this point in a very difficult situation. Um, arming Ukraine to help them push back Russia, um, trying to, you know, be willing to talk about questions of nuclear weapons and strategic stability and arms control. You know, we we had the National Security Advisor say just a week or so back that, you know, the administration is still willing to talk to Russia on these questions. And so, you know, I think these are sensible decisions. Um, where I worry is that I don't think the administration really has any plan for the end game here. Um, and I think, you know, the the best case scenario that we're looking at here is a war that just lasts on and on and on, draining everyone's resources, keeping escalation risks high. You know, the worst case scenario is that this escalates into a broader, you know, US-Russia war. Um, and I don't think the administration is doing enough to prevent that. So I think that they do need to start thinking now, even though the contours of a deal just aren't there. I think the administration needs to start thinking now about what that would look like and under what conditions would they actually push for some kind of settlement in Ukraine? And that's a question they've so far proved very unwilling to talk about even privately. I basically agree. I think they've, they've sort of got the, the logic of the policy about right. How do, you, how do you blunt Russia's offensive without going to the brink? In a war where you have real but limited interests, right? Because at the start in February, NATO had an interest in not having a kind of newly emboldened wolf having devoured Ukraine on its border, dealing only with an insurgency. So that, that's been an achievement. The difficulty now is keeping going that sense of limitation, even in conditions where the, the incentives can run either to capitulate now or ramp up to kind of all-out risk. Um, I think we have to think about what what missions we will, we the United States and Europe will continue to arm Ukraine for? I'm afraid 
we have to be quite robust in the discussions with Ukraine about about our interests as opposed to their interests because there's overlap but there's differences. I think Crimea should be a non-starter. I don't think we should be sponsoring an attempt at this point to retake Crimea. I, I honestly don't know what to say about where whether I think Russia has existential red lines for sure in the Donbass. We need to get the best possible information about that. Um, I, I fear we're also at a stage now where because of Putin foreclosing negotiations at this point, Russia is going to have to be warred down further into negotiations. In other words, negotiations are an outcome of further fighting, but also the fighting itself, in a sense, has some value in building in an extra deterrent not to do this again. So ideally, Russia would look back on this campaign in the way the Soviet Union looked back on the Finland campaign. They achieved some of their objectives territorially, but it was so exorbitantly expensive, they never wanted to do it again. That's And we're in that world, very unsatisfactory outcomes here. Uh, but in a sense, it's the discipline of maintaining unsatisfactory set of policies that are the least bad. Emma Ashford, Patrick Porter, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much for having us. 